she's like, hey, I want to go see the world, you know, and at the beginning of the story, she's sort of getting familial pressure to marry Jonathan. And she's like, you know, Jonathan's really cool. And Jonathan is cool. He's not sort of the bookish character in the novel, but more on him later. Like she wants to, you know, she wants to know what it's like to run around in the Amazon, right? Or see what the pyramids are like, that kind of thing. She has the adventurer spirit. She also carries a Derringer in her purse, which is pretty cool. You know, she knows how to handle herself. And then so she's going through life at the beginning of the book. And she's like, "Uh, you know, I love Jonathan. He's nice. He's great, actually. He's the one for me. But, you know, would he want the traditional, you know, wedding and have a family? Because I don't know if I want that. I think I'd like to know what Asia looks like before I do something like that, you know. And I don't even know if I want to continue teaching. So she's kind of going through that. And then the worst thing in the world imaginable presents itself to her, to Jonathan Harker, to Quincy Morris, to Ian Seward, to Arthur Holmwood, presents itself to them. And like I said, the worst thing happens to them. And what do you do? So the second half of the book is essentially her consciously or whether she knows it or not that's a good question i don't know if she knows it or not she probably doesn't but she does live out that thirst for adventure and i'm pardon the pun by saying that by chasing down this vampire Hello, my dear hearts. I am the adorable Eva Webb. This is Titular Characters, and in this issue, we're featuring Ricardo Delgado. He's a master storyteller. His Age of Reptiles graphic novels are universally acclaimed for their stunning depiction of dinosaurs and prehistory. With his work as a storyboard artist and character designer for films including Apollo 13, Avatar, The Last Airbender, The Incredible Hulk, Men in Black, Wally Delgado is also one of Hollywood's leading conceptual designers, and his latest endeavor just might be his most ambitious to date. The current project, an all-new illustrated novel, Dracula of Transylvania, features an original story and more than 20 lavish illustrations reimagining Bram Stoker's story like you've never seen it before. And he's here with us today, ready to talk about nightmares, history, and the children of the night. How are you, Ricardo? I'm well, thank you. I cannot complain. Having a nice day. I hope you're well, too. Oh, yeah, I'm having a beautiful weekend. It is good. nice. It just got warm outside again, so I'm, uh, I'm very, very excited right? about that. So I guess the, the place to begin is, where are you from? Where does your uh, creative journey start? 
Well, my creative journey starts in Los Angeles. That's where I was born and raised. My parents are originally from Costa Rica, and they they emigrated here in the 60s. And then I was born here and just kind of grew up in L.A. I'm an L.A. kid and just have always um, been fortunate to not have to gravitate to other parts of the world. It all kind of came to me, you know, I went to, I grew up here, went to school here, went to Art Center College of Design, where I, I now teach as well. And I, um, you know, just kind of do my thing and I'm grateful to, to be able to keep doing it. So normally when we do this show, we get a lot of people who have done a lot of comics. Okay. And uh, creative things related uh, to comics. Is it fair to ask you where you're uh your journey with comics and creative things begins? Sure. Like professionally, like I guess. Yeah. Yeah. My comic stuff began, and this is an interesting story, I guess. It happened in the 90s. I I was working on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And the way back then that you, you that film illustrators, concept artists and whatnot would find jobs was through the Hollywood Reporter. And in the Hollywood Reporter, there's there's every it used to be every Friday, I think, or was it Tuesday? I, I can't remember. But anyway, they used to list all the, the films that were in development, pre-production, production, et cetera. And um there was a listing for um Alien versus Predator. And I was like, oh man, that would be cool to work on. So back then they would have like a, a phone number that you could call for the production office. So I called the Dark Horse Comics production office at 20th Century Fox lot, because that's where they were back then. And just said, hey, you know, can I get your fax number? Because back then, instead of say, sending a PDF of your designs or whatever, or your website, I would send my resume and about, you know, eight to 10 pieces of concept artwork. So I did that after getting their fax number. Then I called them back. Hey, did you get my fax? You know, I sure love to work on Alien vs. Predator. And they basically say, well, we're not going to do the movie, but would you like to do a comic? And so that's kind of how it started. Just kind of stumbled into it, to be honest. And when someone asks you a question like that, you don't say no, or I don't know, or gee, I never thought about it. You just say yes right away, right? So that's what I did. I said yes. And they told me to put a pitch together for a comic book project. And I did. And I'd never seen a a comic book, you know, completely devoted to dinosaurs. And just with pure visual storytelling. And and that's what I kind of based my pitch around. And they took it. And, you know, we've been kind of going ever since. That sounds really exciting. I guess uh, the next next thing I I would ask generally is when you're doing something creative, be it comics or production art or something something like the uh, the Dracula book that you've got on Kickstarter, which we'll talk about in a minute, where does your creativity come from? What sort of uh, emotional place do you draw from? Does it stay pretty consistent? Where do you find your zen? I kind of find my zen and my creative sort of influence and my storytelling juices, if you will, from the stuff I loved as a child and the stuff I still love today, to be honest with you. I mean, we all have that that sense of, you know, 
the childhood thrill and adrenaline of seeing something they thought we thought was really cool. And that's just never really changed for me. And, you know, with comics, it was dinosaurs, you know, with concept artwork, it was just, you know, really coming up with stuff that are trying to, that hasn't been seen before. And with Dracula story, kind of taking all the different versions of Dracula that I thought were really cool as a kid and just sort of melding them into, into my own version. And also kind of, you know, taking a big chunk of history and weaving it into the story as well. So I just always want to retain that sense of childhood fun and enthusiasm. And I, I take that energy into my stories, honestly. You've got this just incredible project going on on Kickstarter right now. Literally, the entire universe is talking about it. I think I saw a tweet today where uh, Mike Mignola from Hellboy fame was retweeting your, your book in the Kickstarter, and that was just magical. Where does this book come from, and, and what is it? Well, first of all, I want to thank Mike for doing that. Yeah, Mike actually wrote a really nice quote that's in the book. There's about four or five quotes from uh, storytellers that I respect, that I appreciate, that kind of do what I do in different different veins, in different areas. For example, there's one from John Landis also, where John is a, you know, he basically made one of my favorite werewolf films of all time, an American werewolf in London. And I, I met John working on Beverly Hills Cop 3 a while back. And we just had everything in common from the Universal Monsters to the Three Stooges. And so... He was really, you know, someone that, like the first 10 years of my career, I was really fortunate because I worked uh, on a lot of films and I worked with a lot of people that I considered to be auteurs and storytellers. And and John was one. And all they would talk about was the story, this story, or in this part of the story, or what we need for this section of the story, in this scene of our story, stuff like that, right? And as someone who was sort of creating their own effort at the time in comics, I always just kind of soak that in, right? And I wanted to basically create something that would resonate with me with this Dracula thing. But I was like, you know, if I do it as a comic, do I want to do it as a comic? You know, and I would started writing sort of between now and back then the early 2000s, and I've actually written two novels before this. But with this one, I actually wrote the novel. And as I went along, I thought, you know, I wonder if it would be really cool to include concept artwork because I'd woven a lot of concepts, my conceptual design experience into the story, right? Like, for example, everyone's seen all the versions of the vampire bat that Dracula turns into, right? You know, in the movies, you know, some of them work okay. Some of them, you know, have uh, stood the test of time, perhaps more nostalgically than realistically, let's put it that way. You know, but I I still love, you know, seeing a rubber bat, you know, bop around in the air, right? I mean, it just reminds me of my childhood. I, I find it to be very charming. But, you know, modern audiences are like, Dude, that's a rubber bat, man. It looks fake, right? But what we haven't seen is Dracula as a, in bat form, but he's as big as a pteranodon, and he's in the room with you, 
and he looks like he could bite your head off and rip it off your body like a tiger would, right? And so I essentially took the Stoker story and just expanded it into a broader novel that explores the the areas of the story that are you know are talked about a little bit uh, within the novel, but I really wanted to sort of address from a modern conceptual design standpoint, like what does the Dracula wolf look like? Like there's a not too many incarnations of that in film. There's a werewolf form of Count Orlock in the original Nosferatu, and then in the Frank Langella 1979 version of Dracula, which is a pretty good version of the movie. There's a cut where Dracula dives out a window, and then he's in a wolf form as he goes through the window. And that's cool, but it's, again, what if the wolf was as big as a raptor or a tiger, and it was in the room with you, and it, there was no BS, right? There was, and so in that way, I had I was not limited by visual effects budgets, you know, the tastes of the filmmakers that I had worked with, you know, uh, whether we something like that could be pulled off or not. I was only limited by what I could write. And so I wrote it that way. You know, what if when Dracula gets wounded, he actually starts all the different forms that he turns into start bubbling up, right? And so then I thought, if I can do that, if I can write that out, that would be really cool. And so I did. And after the fact, I created all this concept art to sort of further sell the pitch. And with the idea that it's kind of like Dracula Transylvania is basically an art of Star Wars book combined with Salem's Lot, right? So it's a prose novel with a bunch of concept art kind of mashed together. God, you know, uh, one thing that uh, that really strikes me looking at the Kickstarter for this and and uh, just just looking at the the project specification, you must have gone through the original Bram Stoker's Dracula. Like, I don't even want to think about how many times. Probably a lot. How involved is the process there? What do you pull out of the original novel, and and what do you focus on, and and how do you make that decision? For me, I just focused on the the main themes, which are basically, you know, good versus evil, and that's nothing new. But I also wanted to sort of expand the that idea to to fit the story more for modern audiences. I was really interested in the idea that the cast of protagonists are these wealthy people, kind of like a lot of the characters are from stories back then, right? But uh, I wanted to make them decent people. And I did that. And that sort of furthers the contrast between them and Dracula. Dracula in this story is essentially just a badass. Like there's, he's a merciless, evil tyrant. He just crushes everything in his path. He is the king of the vampires. He rules over them. He ties them mercilessly. They are starting to resist his rule. Part of the one of the bigger themes in this story is, you know, the ancient world and its adaptability into the modern world as the, as 1899 is making that transition. It's uh, in the machine age at that point, right? The Victorian era is in full swing. And how do you, how do you contrast that? And so I wanted these, you know, flawed, but kind people to represent, you know, ideally all of us, 
and they're represented with just this enormous evil. It just, he is the son of Satan in the story. He is at this point, the chosen one to, to take over for Satan, if you will. I'm going to leave that as a very broad term, but he is Satan's son and he clashes with other vampires that are jockeying for that position, including one or two historical figures that I've turned into vampires or I've made into vampires for the story. And he's just a ruthless monster. There's just no redeeming this guy. He is pure evil. He's Vader. He's Thanos. He's Hannibal Lecter. All that stuff. And on top of that, he's an incredible shapeshifter. He can turn into the, the classic transformative forms of the vampire. He can turn into a giant bat. He can turn into a marauding wolf. He can turn into a giant rat. I thought that you know, I wanted to do a rat form, but I didn't want to do the gag that was done in Bram Stoker's Dracula that I thought was wonderful and very creepy and very cool. And then he can turn into the form of mist. Now, you know, mist can be a lot of different things, and it's been done, in to, again, to different degrees of success, but my form of mist will be pretty cool. And it will live up to the standard of the other forms. So um, I just wanted the kind of Dracula story that I had seen very little of in, in, in some of the more recent incarnations. Dracula was kind of a romantic. And in this story, he sees women as objects. And that's part of his downfall as well. So in many ways, the, he is a product of the ancient world. And it's his journey in this story to realize that the world is changing and he's not changing with it. That's why the other vampires are sort of rebelling against him. Maybe because he's taxed the hell out of them for centuries as well, you know, which is part of the reason he's, he's gathered all this wealth. I also like the idea that the, the brides are an active part of the story. Super. Like, I always thought it was so dumb as a kid. Like, I'm putting on my six-year-old hat now, right? Putting it on. And I thought that, you know, little kid me in front of the TV here in Los Angeles during the month of October before Halloween watching Dracula and, you know, Dracula's daughter and son of Dracula. The idea that, the you know, Dracula goes to England and leaves the brides behind. I just thought that was, why do that? And, you know, some of the people that I've talked to that are, experts in Dracula sort of told me, well, they, they're a little left behind to protect the castle or guard the castle. And I was like, who's going to break into Dracula's castle? That's like the scariest place in the universe. Like who, you know, come on, who would do that? So I brought them with Dracula, or I should say they made the journey with him. They are fully fleshed out characters. They have their own personalities. They represent uh, three of the ancient uh, cultures of the ancient, the three main cultures of the ancient world, which are ancient Egypt, ancient Rome, and ancient Greece. And their names are Venus, Andromeda, and Petra. And they are not to be trifled with. And they feel a loyalty to Dracula, but you are kind of starting to see their evolution as well. And they go to toe-to-toe with him throughout the story. 
much to his annoyance, much to his growing annoyance, and much to their growing anger. One of the things that's kind of important for me to kind of weave into their characters is that he sees them as possessions. He sees them as, he doesn't refer to them as brides, his brides. He refers to them as his concubines. And they bristle at that completely. They have bristled at it. And so a lot of the story, as we go through Stoker's story, is them added into the story. They go to England with Dracula. But as they're going, they're kind of having this running feud, if you will, as to their position within this family, quote unquote, if you will. And Dracula does not consider them to be family. He does not consider them to be friends. He considers them to be his pit bulls and his concubines. And they're getting more and more super pissed off as the story is going on. So I was quite excited about that possibility. It added another layer of tension and interest to the story. It explained why they were brought along as well. So they're kind of, he doesn't want to explain that there's his hired muscle, right? But they kind of are. And um, they do that job very, very well. You meet them in Dracula's castle in the first act of the story, and they're there throughout the story. And they are part of what I call the expansion of the Dracula supernatural universe. The idea that Dracula is the king of the vampires is one idea, but, you know, what what is this body that he's ruling, right? You know, is it like is it like the Harry Potter movie where they go and they, there's the Quidditch World Cup and then there's the Irish vampires and the Japanese vampires and the vampires from Guam? Kind of, yeah, it's kind of like that. And, you know, the organizational body of the vampires is kind of going through its own sort of crisis as well. You know, they, they've they set up banks and own properties throughout the world, and Dracula keeps tithing them unfairly, they feel. And so the, the body of the vampire world, they don't have a name because I, I couldn't think of a cool one, right? I went through a lot of iterations, so they just go unnamed. Like, what do you do? Like, you know, I... They have their own bank, I believe, but I didn't name the bank because, you know, I couldn't come up with a cool name. It was like Bank Nocturne or something silly like that. And and so, you know, around this world of Dracula, as he goes from Transylvania to England, there's a lot of stuff that's sort of coming to the fore, a, a lot of chickens coming to roost and all that stuff. And it's all part of the story. I love the uh, the sound of the uh, the intrigue that that that's going along. All just this, it sounds like just this pot of conflict. Well, yeah, and then this organizational body, which again, you know, what do I call them? Club vampire, right? Like just I just kind of left that alone. And so they decide to act on their own. And so part of what happens is that there is a conspiracy in the story. To again add yet another layer to to the events of the original novel that are geared toward you know trying to at the very least control Dracula or put him in his uh, organizational place and he's just not going to have anything to do with that 
Like my Dracula is not a negotiator. Like he's not going to sit down with you and say, well, you know, we'll just divide the land up like this. He's like, well, how about I kill you and take your land instead? You know, he's that kind of, he's that kind of guy, right? If you watch those old universal monster movies and I, I adore those things, you know, I really do. They're a big reason why we're even having this conversation right now. Like Dracula was the only pure evil one, period. Like the Frankenstein monster, he was kind of like this child that didn't know what life or death was, right? He saw a little girl throw a flower in the in the lake. So he's like, oh, you're a pretty thing. I'll throw you in the in the lake as well. So, you know, he really didn't understand sort of moral consequences. The wolf man is just kind of, well, I got I was in the wrong place in the wrong time and I got bit by a dog, you know. Oops. So he was always kind of like, I just want to die, which kind of is, that's a very empathic thing, you know, and I think everyone sort of saw Larry Talbot as sort of the, he's the aw shucks guy. Like, oh man, he was the, the hard luck guy. He didn't want to be the wolf man. And he, and we, we always understood that. And then, you know, you had um, the mummy, the mummy was acting out of love in the original mummy. You know, I'm, I'm trying to find the, the long lost love that, that I left behind in Egypt and the creature from the black lagoon. That's just a big fish. You know, it does what it does, you know, and yet Dracula was the one that said, Hey, I'm the bad guy. I will come and kill you in the middle of the night. I need you to survive. I need your sustenance to sustain me. And I, I don't really think that that had ever been sort of explained that much. You know why? Because it costs money to explain that stuff in a movie. Right. You know, and the more, the further you go back, and in my story, Dracula's born in 999, and the events of his birth are basically, everyone kind of thinks, well, the world's going to end, you know, at the end of the first millennium, and it kind of doesn't, but he's there, and he's there as the son of Satan to sort of propagate his philosophy of evil, and, you know, live up to the idea of being the beast of revelations. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily work out that way. And it's some of it is because of Dracula's own uh, misdeeds, but also other parts of it are because these other forces around Dracula and around Satan sort of uh, begin to prevent that right away. Evil consumes evil, right? That kind of thing, right? That's a big thing for me. I, I love the visuals, at least the ones we've seen so far from the Thank book. Thank you. It's- it's all just so original. You've got like these these gruesome characters with like multiple sets of eyes. And- well, I mean, I wish I could say it comes from the pit of my soul, but it just it, it does come from the the heart of my imagination. Like I, I have a pretty strong visual vocabulary, being a kid that grew up during sort of what they call the monster generation. And that what I mean by that is that in the sixties, moving forward television stations started showing the universal monster films on tv right so that led to an upkick of popularity for those films for those characters that spawned comic books and tv shows there's a tv show called dark shadows that i've i know a lot about but i've never seen in this country and i've only seen dark shadows in uh when i was a little kid in costa rica we spent the summer there 1972 actually to be specific and my, my uncles were like, oh, my God, he, he, one of my uncles, Felix, he's an older guy now, but, you know, he showed me a bunch of vampire movies. 
but he watched Dark Shadows every day, and it was called Sombras Tenebrosas, which kind of translate to scary shadows. But the thing that's interesting is that I watched Dark Shadows, and they spoke in Spanish, okay, because they were dubbed, right? And so my vampires in my Dracula story all speak in Latin or their own language, and it was really hard to figure out how you would have them speak in their own language and then translate that right on the page as they say it in English. Does that make sense? And those are just all ideas I've always wanted to see, you know? And anyway, with my, with regard to my concept stuff, I I just wanted to see stuff that I hadn't seen before. You know, we've seen a lot of versions of, you know, demons and Satan and I, but I wanted to just make them, you know, pretty original and scary. And sometimes they, you know, I do kind of look back on them and go, well, do they feel, you know, too alien, if you will, but uh, not really, you know, I just want them to look weird and cool and just something you haven't seen before, which is what being a conceptual designer is all about. So I, I really had this big dream of taking my stories and starting to apply my my conceptual design skills to them. So I have a bunch of stories lined up that, you know, I'm hoping to go forward with if this one does really well. So my concept stuff is just kind of, I've, I, I, actually didn't embrace it at first. I, I was, re- I resisted it. I just wanted the prose to sort of be what it is. But, you know, as I went along, I was like, you know, that's just a gear that a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of books can't really offer. And that's what really kicked the book into, into the next level of uh, like, Hey, this is something we haven't seen before. You know, like I remember running into John Landis, I would say three or four years ago, I was in the middle of writing it. And I was telling him, yeah, I'm working on this uh, Dracula book. And he's like, everyone's got a Dracula book or a Dracula movie. And it's true. And that's the idea. Like, how do you distinguish it, right? So if you distinguish it with your concept artwork and you fill Dracula's castle with skeletons, demons, rats, and all kinds of crazy evil ephemera, then, you know, you that's how you distinguish yourself. And I feel like I've kind of made my story distinct that way. It's, it's really neat. I, I mean, when I look at it and uh, just some of the stuff we've seen in the promotional art so far, it really feels just completely original. Thank you. And you've got just a ton of new characters and obscure characters in this book. So I was, I was wondering, when you write something like this, how do the characters find their voices? I kind of base them on uh, a combination of people that I know and uh, actors that I would cast. It's just a big slew of like, they do kind of find their voices after a while. And uh, for example, okay, you know, my, uh, like I said, Dracula is based on all the people that are evil in this world. They kind of have the same kind of deal going on, right? You know, they're not they're not tough to figure out, you know, but I wanted to present the story with the idea that you think that Jonathan Harker is the main protagonist in this story. But the actual, in my opinion, the main protagonist is uh, Mina Murray. Like she is a strong, smart, learned woman, and she's kind of a school teacher that yearns to go out and be an adventurer. And by adventurer, I don't necessarily mean Indiana Jones, although I love Indiana Jones. But 
she's like, hey, I want to go see the world, you know, and at the beginning of the story, she's sort of getting familial pressure to marry Jonathan. And she's like, you know, Jonathan's really cool. And Jonathan is cool. He's not sort of the bookish character in the novel. But more on him later. Like, she wants to, you know, she wants to know what it's like to run around in the Amazon, right? Or see what the pyramids are like. That kind of thing. She has the adventurer spirit. She also carries a derringer in her purse, which is pretty cool. You know, she knows how to handle herself. And then so she's going through life at the beginning of the book. And she's like, "Ah, you know, I love Jonathan. He's nice. He's great, actually. He's the one for me. But, you know, would he want the traditional, you know, wedding and have a family? Because I don't know if I want that. I think I'd like to know what Asia looks like before I do something like that, you know, and I don't even know if I want to continue teaching. So she's kind of going through that. And then the worst thing in the world imaginable presents itself to her, to Jonathan Harker, to Quincy Morris, to Ian Seward, to Arthur Homewood presents itself to them. And like I said, the worst thing happens to them. And what do you do? So the second half of the book is essentially her consciously or whether she knows it or not. That's a good question. I don't know if she knows it or not. She probably doesn't, but she does live out that thirst for adventure. And I'm pardon the pun by saying that by chasing down this vampire. Yeah. Like they Dracula goes to England and then he, he does his business, if you will. And then these young people boldly chase him back across the continent. She does that with a lot of courage, a lot of grit, and without any fear whatsoever. And I'm, I'm really proud of that. And as progressive as, you know, I believe that Mina and Jonathan are, Quincy Morris is like in the novel. He is a Texan and he is the body bigger than life Texan that I thought he could be imagined to be. And he's, he's also, he's not the comic relief, but he's the humor relief, if you will. Right. You have to be very careful with the tone of these stories that whenever you, whenever you release the tension in the story using comedy, that it's not comedy at the expense of the tone of the story. And Quincy is a Texan and he's somewhat, you know, more, reserved about some of his thoughts and you know he's he's a big guy and a lot of stuff he wears is everything he wears is western themed and you know he carries a big shotgun and all that stuff and yet you know he respects uh, Mina who is you know the heart and soul of the group that's trying to do the impossible here track track a monster back to its lair and kill him Wow. With a period piece, I imagine uh, you've got some unique challenges. And one of them that comes to the forefront of my mind would be, how do you approach diversity and representation in a book like this? Well, you approach it by respecting it and weaving it into the story. (laughs) That's that's how you do it. And I wanted a lot of that. That's why I made uh, Mina, my protagonist, Big fan of Science of the Lambs here as well, right? Like just 
that's an inspiration as well. Like, my God, the, the evil in that story is just, it reaches into your soul, you know, and in the middle of that is uh, Clarice Starling, right? And she, she expresses everything that you need to express from the standpoint of a protagonist, you know, and, and I wanted Mina to sort of have that. And, and I think she does. And I'm really rather proud of her. And the beginning of the story, I kind of addressed that when you first meet the cast of characters, they're, ha- they're doing target shooting. And Quincy, the Texan is shooting against Mina and she outshoots him. Right. So, and they're shooting like glass balls that someone's thrown up in the air. And it's a minor scene, but it introduces a lot of my themes that are really important. The idea that, you know, Mina is someone who dares sort of shoot it out with the Texan, right? And in turn, Quincy is a gracious loser. And I wanted that to be kind of a surprise as well, you know. And also, as we go on, and I'm trying not to reveal too much, but Quincy is our sort of... um, our call to diversity, like his story amid the diversity, I don't want to say discovered, but the, uh, yeah, I guess uh, for the shorthand, we use the term, dis- the newly discovered diversity of the, of the West. Quincy represents that in every way. And so, you know, you learn layer upon layer about Quincy and this, you know, crazy kind of conservative Texan as we go. And yet, you know, Quincy turns out to be multiracial, right? And so you, as the reader, hopefully will fall for Quincy's sort of brashness and, you know, big mouth. You know, he can put his foot in his mouth and then shoot his way out of it two seconds later kind of thing. But he certainly knows how to tip his cap when someone's beating him, right? And I thought that that was an important moment in the story. I also... I'm really excited about the complexities of the brides and there is a true depth to their story and they truly, they truly grow to love each other. And they also represent the tragedy of being in a, an abusive relationship and how to deal with it and how to fight your way out of it. So I approached the novel like that. Like you can't just really retell the same story, right? Like I took the same, the framework of the original story, but I wove modern trappings into it, including pacing. Like hopefully the story will go along at like, you know, a million miles an hour, right? Novel wise. It's, it's a big novel too. It's 700 pages. Okay. But there's a lot of, a lot of character stuff that I wove into it that I'm really, really proud of. You know, if you don't care about these people as they ch- start chasing this evil across the continent, then why read the book, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Looks like a, just a really high-quality production, too. There was an option even for a leather-bound version of the book as well. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm excited to see, you know, where where the campaign is at. And certainly, you know, it succeeded everyone's expectations. And I think that there's even going to be, you know, there was a really nice article in Bleeding Cool this morning, which continues to, you know, it kind of the message, in my opinion, of the campaign is like, hey, come for the art, but stay for the story, right? And I think for whatever 
format people know me, whether it's my comics or my concept art, I hope that they look at the artwork and go, wow, I haven't seen this kind of Dracula before, right? Now, wow, I love all these macabre, creepy pieces of artwork. Well, I have this book in front of me. Why don't I read the first chapter? And, you know, the first chapter takes place, you know, about 300 years after the birth of Christ. So it is a deep historical story. And hopefully people will, will dig into that and, and read it. Now, you have worked on all kinds of things over the years. I mean, uh, you're not just somebody who's involved with comics or somebody who's done Dracula. You've worked on some just huge, crazy projects. Just going through your bio and, and your history, it's, it's really impressive. And uh, what's, what's the coolest thing you've ever worked on? I mean, if we're going to do like a list, you know, and you, I, I know you didn't phrase it that way, but if I was going to make ahead. that. Yeah. Like, okay, let's do a list of like my, the favorite stuff that I've done in terms of the final product. And if I did that, it would easily be number one would be men in black. Uh, Number two would probably be the Incredibles. And number three would probably, uh, it might be Avatar last airbender. That might be three. That was a really solid one as well. A lot of fun. And it's funny because, like, if I had to rank them with experience in terms of the fun I had on that show, not to say that I didn't have fun on the shows I just mentioned, but I, I think that the uh, they, they would be pretty close as well. Like, I had a lot of fun working on, on Men in Black on the Amblin lot of Universal Studios, work with a few of the great concept artists that happen to be my friends. The Incredibles might would make my top three only because I worked at home and I love doing that. So that was a lot of fun. I kind of went from the Matrix sequels, which that's another great experience. Like I, I had a lot of fun on the Matrix sequels, but I had to drive down to Venice, which was not an easy drive. And then I would say, you know, a lot of my Disney animation experiences were just really beautiful really charming experiences and I uh, probably the the thing I'm most grateful for along the way is not really the film credits as much as the experience of meeting, you know, a bunch of people that were really nice. You know, Avatar was like that as well. A bunch of nice people on Avatar. You remember stuff like that. You know, you learn not to mention the ones you maybe didn't have a great time on, but the stuff that I, I was on that I enjoyed and I was able to enjoy, I just really savor all that. You know, do you feel like the experience of of producing uh, art for these these just massive and, and beautiful projects does it change the way you consume it as a fan or a moviegoer or a reader? I mean, the fun of of watching that stuff really doesn't go away for me. I still enjoy it. Like I'm a big comic book movie fan. I enjoy that stuff still. I really appreciate the effort that goes into crafting those kind of movies, even though I, I really don't worry, work on that stuff anymore. I decided, you know, a while back that I wanted to concentrate on telling my own stories. And so I, I teach a lot now. And so that really helps put me in a position to be able to use my free time when I'm not teaching to do stuff like this. And so I have, you know, a bunch of projects lined up that are kind of similar to this. And I'll just kind of, keep going that way you know hopefully but yeah i i really still do enjoy the the movie making and storytelling that's 
going on. I don't think that really changes. A good story is a good story, you know. I think that a lot of people are really they start they scrutinize a lot of stuff that's come out today, like really, really, you know, uh, a lot. And uh, it's hard to make a movie. It's hard to do a collaborative thing. I know because I did it for many years, but now I decided to tell my own story. And here's the thing, you know, when you tell your own story, you become the only one that's responsible for it, right? So I am the one that's sort of responsible for Dracula of Transylvania, you know? And so when I worked in concept art, I could do like, I don't know, a bunch of different versions of the same character, different concepts, right? And many, many times they would choose, you know, it was pretty rare that they chose the one I thought worked the best. But with my own stories, with, you know, starting with Dracula of Transylvania, it's my concepts that'll be on the page. You'll see what I think are the best iterations of of the characters and ideas that I present for my stories. Like, and I, I find that to be really fulfilling, you know, even more so than the my film stuff. Honestly, it's cool to see my ideas live in a story, but then to see the you know the whole story be something that I was able to do. That's really cool. You know, I'm very proud of that. That's amazing. That that just sounds really, really exciting, you know, to sort of just reach the point that you've reached in your career and be able to say, Wow, yeah, now we're doing it on my terms. That's awesome. Yeah, you know what? But it's a different it's a different kind of thing in the sense that so you you work on a movie, you get hired on a movie, and then you read the script and you realize the script is not so good. You still got a job to do. You still got to service that script. And so many, many uh, I'll speak for myself as a concept artist and Star Wars artist, reading a script and realizing it's, it's well, the script is no good. It's one thing to say that, but okay, what are you going to do about it, right? Like, okay, you think you know so much. Why don't you, you know, can you do better? And those are questions that, we all asked ourselves as concept artists and storyboard artists and, you know, and whatnot. And so like, this is kind of, kind of me putting my chips on the table saying, you know what, I, I feel like I can, I feel like I can do something that, you know, is worthy of the deep, you know, sense of history and literature that this story has presented itself with. Right. I mean, there's a reason that a lot of people read Dracula in, in high school and Frankenstein, I mean, those are two, basically, you know, those are two works of literature. And I'm trying to live up to that. And I'm not saying that my work is literature, but I'm saying that, you know, I wanted to tell a story that wove my sense of story and sensibilities, along with my sense of being able to create imagery that worked well with my story and then just put it out there. And, you know, some people are going to like it and some people aren't. But, you know, what's important, Eva, is the the thing that's more important than anything else is that I like it. And I like this story. I believe in the story a lot. I think I explain my story very well, at least at the table. Right. And I think that the visuals speak for themselves. I think it's I think it looks pretty cool or I wouldn't have put it out there. Before we get into the fun part of the show, I want to explain one more facet of the book and then we'll dive into the even better part of the show okay so my my story takes place in a specific period in history and so i had to do research for my story and i found that i was starting to gather tidbits of information that had to do with the story sometimes and other times not 
And so what I ended up doing is I ended up two thing, doing two things. I annotated those notes into the book. And then also when we change locations, I actually create like a page or page and a half of facts and points of interest about each place and location that we're moving to along the story. So I'm really, really proud of that simply because, you know, a lot of times history is uncomfortable for people to discuss and it's not for me. Um, One of the points you made earlier is the idea of diversity within a historical story. Well, the more we know and the more we're discovering representation and diversity was much more profound than we've been, you know, we've been shown or led to believe, you know, and so that was also really important to me to be able to sort of explain to to uh, the readers, like, hey, you're in the Paris catacombs, but like, here's where the Paris catacombs are. And if you turn into a bat, a giant bat, and you're chasing another giant bat around Paris in 1899, there is a definitive geography. If you take off from the Paris catacombs and you end up atop the Eiffel Tower, which is, had barely been constructed at that point, like there is a pathway there, right? Like there, it is a real place, you know, and that geography remains to this day. And that's the thing that I think is, is, you know, I don't want to say the cherry on top, but I'm, I'm super proud of the annotations and the historical stuff that are sort of dropped in there. Anyway, on to the best part of the show. On to the fun part. Okay. So uh, these are a bunch of speculative questions that I've been refining and, uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm just going to sort of hit you with Okay. So what's your favorite food? My favorite food? Boy, I would say I miss, I miss burgers and pizza. <laughs> really? <laughs> I can't have them anymore. I, you know, I, I usually have a lot of fruit for breakfast and I have a salad and fruit for lunch. And then I have soup or something equivalent for dinner. But I, I do miss, you know, I do miss burgers and pizza. And there's a lot of good burger places here in LA. And, you know, I do miss cheesy pizza, but, you know, I'm, I'm 56. So I want to take care of myself as long as possible. And so, um, but yeah, I love, I love, I, I can, you know, go somewhere pretty fancy and eat something really a different course meal. And I can also go to a taco truck. So I'm a pretty, Pretty reasonable guy with that kind of thing. I'm pretty flexible. I like a lot of stuff. I'm very open. Nice. Yes. Nice. And the taco trucks in LA are the best in the world. I miss them. They, yeah, no, that's true. And yet, you know, I, I love everything from ramen to Cuban food. Right. This is a very diverse and you know wide open area of uh, the world, and uh, you can eat a lot of different foods for different places. And, you know, that's really cool. I enjoy that. Nice. What's the best swear word? God damn it. Cause you can get away, nice. you can get away with it in different formats. Like it's not severe enough where I don't know. Well, I guess in theory you could get suspended for that, but maybe you probably wouldn't today. If you're in junior high or middle school, you say, God damn it. I don't think that would get you expelled or suspended, but it's kind of a generic 
curse phrase that you can use in a lot of different contexts. You can say it out of like, oh, I hurt my finger. God damn it. Right. Or I, where's the tickets to the ball, ball game? God damn it. That kind of thing. It's almost like your embraceable uh, catchphrase curse phrase. Okay. So you wake up in the morning and you're imbued with superpowers. What are they? What do you do with them? And uh, do you consider yourself a hero or an anti-hero? I would be an anti-hero. And my superpower would be a very strange one. My superpower would be to be able to, if I'm watching a live feed of TV and there is a commentator speaking that I don't like or annoys me, I can create in my mind through my my Professor X and Cerebro-like powers, graphics that would go on TV that would humiliate that that commentator. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. It is. And, and then, but see, they could never trace it back to me. Like they would never <laughs> know that it was me. That's the, that's the genius of it. And, you know, like I could draw like Mickey Mouse ears on people that are having this really serious political discussion, you know, that kind of thing. Or I could create little, little gifs of little shoulder angels and demons on people that are saying things that are true or not true. I would love that. That would be awesome sauce. That would, that's a great superpower. I'm really impressed. I think that's probably the most original. That's the most original thing I've heard in months. Yeah, I mean, you know, there. Yeah, you got invisible. You got flying. Okay, that's cool. But you know what? If I had that superpower, you know, I, I it would be an awesome responsibility, right? Like, you know, that that would be an awesome responsibility. But I I'd like to think that I would I would as an antihero I would somehow use it to rationalize that I'm doing good. Kind of like Magneto. Magneto's like, look, I know I'm an asshole, but you know, I'm doing this because this this stuff's got to be done. And Professor X is like, no, don't do it, dude. But I would probably be somewhere in between Magneto and Professor X with my whole cartoon graphics on political political commentators appearances power. Nice. That is really neat, actually. Thank you. Okay, so 100 years from now, NASA throws your entire lifetime of creative output into a space capsule, and they launch it into space. Sometime later, in deep space, aliens open it up. What do they think of it? They would be really impressed but because it would not be my artwork. It would be the book list, or it wouldn't be my stories. It would be the book list that I give to my students at art center. It would be all the stuff that I was, that I loved, that I was really impressed with all the, all the books that I think are important enough to read that explain who we are as people. And, and, you know, the works of, of uh, brought much broader and more intelligent minds than myself. And they, but they would know that it's my library because it would have my signature on there, right? So they go, I don't know what this Ricardo Delgado is, but man, he had good taste in books. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so I guess that's our show, Ricardo. Where can people find you and your Kickstarter for the uh, the Dracula Project online? You know, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. On my Facebook page lately, you could 
and my Instagram page, there's links to the to the uh, Kickstarter going on. You can also Google my name and Kickstarter and Dracula, and it'll come up. So I'm pretty pretty easy to find. You know, just don't be a weirdo and you won't get blocked, kind of thing. <laughs> well, you know, caveat, right? Everyone would be reasonable and you won't get blocked. And I, like I said, I'm on Twitter, Del- Delgado Saris on Twitter, and Ricardo Delgado on. Uh, on Facebook and Ricardo Delgado Art on Instagram. So I'm around. Say hey, shoot me, no one say hey. Don't be rude or you'll get blocked. <laughs> well, Ricardo, you have just been an absolutely charming guest. Um, oh, you're very, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for uh, for doing my happy little show. It's, uh, it's an honor to have you. You're very kind. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you putting the good word of out about uh, my humble project. And, um, you know, if I could be self-centered for a second, although this conversation has all been about my story, you know, if it helps spread the word, then, then that's a good thing. So thank you for that. Wasn't that amazing? I just want to close the show by thanking the most important person in the universe. That's you. You're beautiful, valid, and completely adorable. And we couldn't do this without you and your downloads. Thank you. We got a donation this week from our friend and fellow podcaster, Emerald Enthusiast. You gotta see this note he left. He said, I'm always appreciative of your comic book knowledge and creative insights. Keep up the good work. That is seriously sweet. Emerald Enthusiast is the co-host of the Emerald Echo podcast, which you have to check out. And... I heard that he's Gorilla Grodd's stunt double. It's a solid show. Find him on Twitter at EmeraldInfusy1. Links in the description. Titular Characters is a comprehensive listing of bird species recorded in the U.S. by the state of Maine by the Maine Bird Records Committee and is dated March of 2020. Just kidding. It's a podcast. It's produced and hosted by Eva Webb. Podcast art by Patrick Turla. Who's pretty neat. You should check him out on Twitter. Opening theme by Antonia Marquis. Closing theme by Mikey Flash of Speed Force Music. Found editing services by Brogan Malloy. Special thanks to Hina Batery. And that's it, babies. Join us next time for another exciting adventure in cyberspace. Love ya.